0: The last time, uh, really it was a, uh, a message where nobody, uh, except very, very, very uns, um, nobody escaped Paul's, Paul's crosshairs. Uh, there was older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and we discussed in a little more depth after me having uh, made a mistake as to exactly what younger men and women were, uh, that at least in uh, your friend and mine, John MacArthur's view, uh, that younger tends to equate to those uh, 12 and older. So if you are below 12, which is I don't know, half a dozen of us here today, um, then maybe you just escaped Paul's crosshairs, uh, but really um, in practical terms, Lord willing, each one of us will become older. And so even those who are young, uh, even those who are infants, ought to pay at least some degree of attention. But older men, uh, we, we bode to to lead well and to show themselves to be excellent to the glory of God. Older women be be examples, make amazing homes, have the focus on those serving on serving those within the home unit. Uh, and with utilizing that term, uh, we discussed that whilst Paul most obviously writes to to married women, uh, utilizing the term of home unit, I think the same principles are are able to be applied to those who are not married. So those within your circle of influence, those within your home unit, um, ought to be those whom you uh, bless and seek to selflessly serve. Uh, Be standards, older women, of purity, teaching the younger women godly ways. Young women be discipled by godly older women following their example as they follow that of Christ. And younger men be manly, mature self-control is the the one characteristic that's specifically listed, um, and upstanding citizens of Christ's kingdom. And this this kind of emphasis that Paul uh, bids of those who he writes to uh, will produce necessarily an impact on society. And we talked about the the value of that, that home family unit, not just as something which is be inside four physical walls, but is a, a group of people that produce culture inwardly, which then goes out into the world and preaches that culture and, and takes dominion for the sake of Christ in whatever area Jesus has put them into. I think of the, the family as the, the petri dish. It's this area where, uh, culture can grow whereby then it goes out, as I've described, or um, we watched something recently where I'm sure the, uh, the person who was just dis- speaking described family as something like the nuclear reactor. It was this, this big, bold unit which, while contained, has a, a great effect on uh, that and those around them. So we'll read, uh, in fact, the entirety of chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. Uh, And as I say, the the focus for today is on verses 7 to 14. uh, And we'll continue in a word of prayer following that. So Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Father, I pray that you would continue to guide our time today. As we look now into your word, help each one of us uh, to understand it rightly. And hence, Lord, may we put it into place that you would be glorified in our application of it. Uh, Bless me as I preach not to be Uh, one who is seen, but simply to be a vessel that describes well your word so that your people would be blessed and fed. I ask it, Lord, all for your name's sake. Amen. So for those of you who have a a short attention span, you almost get sort of two mini-messages today. uh, Verses uh, 7 to... 7 to 10 sort of continue to describe characteristics of various groups, Uh, and then from 11 to 14, uh, starting in accordance with what we just read, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So it's almost like two mini-messages. So for a uh, a Facebook, Instagram generation, perhaps this is a a good one. Verses 7 to 8 say, Show yourself in all respect to be a model of good works, And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Paul's been, as we've said, uh, addressing broader groups, largely based on on age and gender, uh, but he shifts now uh, from these broad groups, and he brings the focus right on to to Titus himself. Uh, And I think we can make the appropriate stretch to say that that applies also to, to leaders. And, you know Titus has been sent to the island of, of Crete or Crete depending on how you want to pronounce it, um, as a leader uh, in, in short at least, to set up leaders within these churches. And so whereas there are broader groups described beforehand, now Paul says you, Titus, you, leader of the church. Not in the popish sense, but as one who is is a leader, an example to others. You show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Every Christian is called to be salt and light. Is called to be radically different from the world around them. I've said it before, and I'll say it again now: that the the heart transformation of a a heart of stone being taken out and a heart of flesh being put in is something which ought to be a big change, ought to be a radical change. And so if if Titus and, and leaders of the church are called to be just that, are called to be leaders, then you could make the case to say that those who lead those who are radically different are to be radically, radically different. They are to be a a model of good works. And the the word used for model can be translated as pattern, example, or most literally a a type. So folks ought to look at this leader. And yes, he's, he's writing to Titus here. But as I say, by extension, folks ought to look to leaders within the church and say, ah, that's how we're meant to do it. That's how we're meant to be. They ought to be a, a pattern, an example to follow. And by the by, a model of good works, uh, just as in the English, uh, the Greek is, is plural and it's a verb. We are to do good works. Works are plenty. It's not enough for a, a leader to have uh, one sort of golden star to their, their chest and you know, one good thing, one good book they've written, one good sermon they've preached, or one particular uh, good theological point that they've made and now they're set up as a leader. No, this leader is to be in all respects a model of good works. Works are plenty. Paul says, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Integrity uh, literally is a A negation of corrupting something, so sort of like a double negative, don't be a corrupter and hence positively uh, teach soundly. Make your teaching something that doesn't corrupt, rather which builds up in the truth, something which is full of integrity. And if we just sort of pause with that thought in mind for a second, if people who are are not leaders in the church, are coming and they are seeing someone who is a model of good works, sorry, shows themselves in all respects to be a model of good works. They have the, I guess, the living, breathing, discipling example. And also this leader teaches in such a way that the things which they teach are full of truth and full integrity. Then not only do you have a, a physical example to follow, but you have someone who teaches rightly. And so if we, uh, as as lay people, come along and follow that example, what a church this would be. And what a church, and I'm not saying just these congregations, but if that were the case across the board, what a a church worldwide we would be. If we put into place the characteristics of, of verses one to six, and then continue to do so, and to have leaders like this, uh, what, a, what a church we would be. And so may we, uh, in, in practical application, may we pray for these kind of leaders within the church. Not that we might set them up on a, a pedestal and worship them, but that we might follow them as they follow Christ. So in integrity, in dignity, uh, the King James translates this word as gravity, which always sort of amuses me, but anyways, transla- translates it as gravity, but it means honesty or worthy of honour. And Paul says that this uh, leader is to have speech that cannot be condemned, or uh, literally but clunkily, healthy or true words that are beyond reproach. This leader in their their teaching and in their day-to-day speech and conduct uh, is to be healthy and true and beyond reproach. In a sense, Paul says, Titus, you are to uh, talk the talk and you're to walk the walk in a fashion which is overtly great, all to the glory of God. Titus, or or the leaders, are to have doctrine in line and good works are plenty. Uh, And if you look back at uh, verses 6 to 10 of chapter 1, uh, you can see that many of these things which Paul lays out of Titus uh, are common to the elder. But here's... Uh, part of the, the main focus of the message today, uh, and indeed relating to the, the title that I've given the message, uh, Titus is to do these things so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And it's very similar to what he said uh, just a couple of verses earlier. Uh, speaking of of. Ladies, were as submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. The point of all of this is not to, to arbitrarily set up standards or to arbitrarily have uh, quote-unquote good people in leadership, but the point of this is so that we adorn the gospel of God, so that we do we never bring disrepute upon our great God who sits upon His throne and who is worshipped uh, forever so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us, and hence the one that we all point towards may be glorified, may be lifted high and not brought low. In 1 Peter 3.16, he says similarly, he says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And so, I don't know about you guys, but I've had, uh, in the past, maybe conversations with non-Christians who claim that you know, Christians are, are hypocrites. You know, they've, they've got all these supposed standards which they set up, and yet they don't live by them. Well, it ought never to be so. Once again, in 1 Peter 2.12, uh, he writes, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. I think we can uh, rightly say that's the world, those who are not Christian. Uh, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This speaks to the, the adorning of, of the gospel, the adorning, adorning of the word of God, which we are to uh, all emulate as Christians. Folks are to be able to say, you know, we... We think you're homophobic and bigoted and whatever else, uh, whatever other isms and schisms uh, they might throw upon us. But we can't deny your character. You believe all of this nonsense from, you know, two to 6, thousand years ago, or perhaps millions of billions of years ago. You believe it all, but I can't fault your character. That's, that's how we're meant to adorn the gospel. So keep your conduct among the gentiles among the world honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation so Titus is to be one who is above reproach in every way appointing leaders who are similar leaders are to be the example that others look to and being the example They are what others are to aspire to, and hence they ought to be exemplary. And I hope that this this puts an appropriate pressure on those who uh, lead in the church. Not an undue one, and of course remembering that those who uh, lead in the church have the Holy Spirit as their their fuel and their fire, just as the rest of us do. But nonetheless, this ought to exert an appropriate pressure um, for those who lead. Verses 9 to 10, moving on to bondservants. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn, once again, the doctrine of God our Saviour. Last week we, uh, I mentioned a, a Greek word, agape, which is one that uh, a lot of folks are somewhat familiar with in the, in the Christian world. Uh, Bondservants is the the Greek word doulos, which is once again another one of those words which folks have some degree of familiarity with, and it really has a a broad scope of meaning uh, from both involuntary to voluntary uh, servanthood or slavehood. Uh, But I think a good application for us uh, is specifically in terms of employment, or more broadly in exercising the characteristics which Paul is about to lay out uh, toward people whose authority we are under um, or whose direction we are to obey. So bond servants are to be submissive, they are to be subject to, under, subordinate to, uh, and here to to be humbly and voluntarily lesser, not in value but in order, uh, and obedient too. Paul gives some positive and some negative admonitions. He says, don't be argumentative. Don't pilfer, don't steal, or, or set apart a portion for yourself in a devious kind of way. And positively, he says, be well-pleasing. Show all good faith. Be faithful, steadfast in the work that you do. And if we were to, I mean, there are, all sorts of uh, seminars and, and LinkedIn things you can listen to and podcasts and whatever else on how to be a good employee, how to, how to climb the ranks and all of these kind of things. But if we were to just put into place these things, you know, employees, be submissive to your jobs, sorry, to your, your bosses. In everything, be well-pleasing. Don't argue with them. Don't pilfer, don't steal from them. Show yourself in all good faith. Be a, be a hard and good worker. If we were to just do those things on a purely practical note, I think we'd do fairly well as employees. And sometimes I really do wonder if, if the simplicity that is advocated by the Scriptures is what the world most reacts against. I mean, that's a, that's a simple message. Don't be a bad employee. Be a good one. Don't steal from your boss. Don't argue with them. Do what they say. Work hard. You'll do well. But what's the point, once again, of of all these characteristics? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. And so ask yourself this now. In everything I do for people in authority to me, do I adorn the doctrine of God? In everything I do for people in authority to me, do I adorn the doctrine of God? And bringing that back to the employment context, when you uh, leave the, the kitchen at work, if you have one, do you leave it in such a state that, that brings good reputation to your Savior, which shows a, a changed heart, which shows one uh, the example of one who wants to leave a place in a good state so that it might be easy for others to use it? In your attitude to to freebies or perks of the job, which is inevitable to to any occupation, regardless of what it might be, do you use those things in a a greedy way or in a way that is appropriately resourceful and, and once again, adorns the doctrine of God well? In the length of your breaks or, or just in any small thing, you can apply it to the small things as well as to the big, do you act in such a way that you adorn the doctrine of God well? that brings God glory. We ought to be active in avoiding what will cause God's word and reputation to be reviled and active in doing what will promote such things. So there's your first mini-message. Now we're moving on to mini-message number two. Verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Turn with me to, uh, to Romans chapter 5. Just quickly on these uh, two verses uh, from Titus, we have bringing salvation, which funnily enough relates to to salvation, that one is ultimately justified before God. And he further goes on to say to to train to renounce ungodliness and various other things, which relates to to sanctification. So really we have the the full-orbed picture. We have the final goal, salvation, and we have the renouncing of things that are evil and the, the promotion of things which are good being <coughs> sanctification, that ongoing process of, of being, moving in the direction of perfection in accordance with God's ways. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is, one thing which I like about this is it's not an, an airy, fairy notion. We're not left in any question as to what the grace of God is. This is Jesus Christ himself. For the grace of God has appeared. We've seen him. We know who he is. This is the grace of God which has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Jesus actually did something about sin. It's very, very different to what we often do in everyday life, whereby we might say, somebody apologizes us on the off chance that they do apologize. And we sort of say, it's fine, don't worry about it, no worries. Jesus actually did something about our sin. And hence God has a very just way of forgiving us for our sins. He He is just and righteous to forgive us for our sin. And in actually doing something about sin on the cross, we see God's grace in the clearest of ways. So you're in Romans 5. Let's read uh, verses 15 to 19. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespasses, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sins, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. We see Jesus' uh, crazy trumping of, of what was done in Adam. Sure, one man's sin led to to death and condemnation for all who followed, but Jesus has has ultimate victory over that, and he has appeared. This is the the grace which we see, which is described in in Titus, and he has really done something about sin, and he really is victorious in having done that. One evil act equaled condemnation, condemnation for all men. One righteous act following many evils equals justification and life for all men. Because I am the way that I am, and because it's in the text, um, I feel obliged to address all men. Does this mean that all are saved? If we were to uh, uh, apply this passage in Romans and in Titus, uh, in its literal form, does that mean that we have to become uh, City Reach Baptist Universal Church? It certainly does not from the context in Titus when all men are described it is all kinds of men Paul's just finished talking about uh, as we've said numerous times older men women younger men and women leaders bond servants those under authority etc and so Paul is describing all kinds of men not every single person everywhere for the entirety of history another parallel or similar passages describe all men uh, similarly as all nations and people groups. And there's a slightly different mechanism used in Romans 5, but if you're interested, see me after the sermon, we can talk about it more then. But this is all to, to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To ask a, a rhetorical question, is your faith in the revealed grace of God, causing you to shun ungodliness and the passions of the world? Is that the outworking of your faith right now in the present world? And you might say yes, and I I hope you do say yes. Does it cause you to reject all worldly passions or just the really bad ones, just the really obvious things? This ought to be something that uh, continues to grow. I think we ought not to think that we've arrived this side of eternity at at a place where we reject all worldly passions. And for argument's sake, even if we were there, uh, we ought still to be on guard so that we didn't backslide into a place of, of letting something in. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. As I've prepared this message and, and as I've uh, practiced, preached through it and, and even just in my, my general preparation and, uh, and research, this verse and this, uh, this part of the chapter uh, I think is particularly endearing and exciting if we'll grab a hold of it uh, and the meaning that it's trying to convey. But we're doing this, we're we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Waiting is is not a a passive word in the original. Uh, In Mark 15, verse 43, the, the same word is used where it says, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. So it's not a just sitting around twiddling your thumbs, not really doing anything. It's an active looking and anticipatory waiting, uh, in this case for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. How often do you spend contemplating Christ's coming? Is it something that that drives you? Is it something that enthralls you? Because passages like this make it seem as if it should. And I believe me, every time I consider something like that, I have to consider how far short I fall of that, uh, because I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about that. Uh, But it's something which we ought to to challenge one another with. The song lyrics of I Can Only Imagine by Mercy Me uh, come to mind as I, I think about that. And it says, surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? in awe of you be still will i stand in your presence to my knees will i fall will i sing hallelujah will i be able to speak at all i can only imagine and this this even those non-scriptural lyrics are are just really amazing if you sort of uh, sit and think about them perhaps where tempted to think, well, what happens if in this eternal state something bad creeps in? And, and you know, whilst it was amazing for a period of time, maybe even thousands of years, what, what happens if something bad creeps in and suddenly it all goes downhill again? Well, it's, it's perhaps a legitimate thing to consider. We'll get to why it won't happen, but it's perhaps a legitimate thing to consider. And in the, in the Matt Damon movie, Downsizing, I don't know if you guys have seen it or otherwise, but one of the cruxes of the movie is where Damon, or Paul Sophranek in the movie, uh, is deciding whether to escape to a new world utopia, uh, where like-minded people will will start again and lock themselves off from the world in order to live in peace and harmony, um, or whether he will uh, stay with the world as it is in uh, in its state of coming down. He's advised against going to this new world utopia by a couple of his friends on the grounds that eventually the utopian society will find itself in disrepair, hurt, war, (laughs) etc. And why? Because of human nature. I believe, I can't remember exactly, but I believe those are the words that they use, of human nature. And we might, from a more theological point of view, we might say because of the effects of sin. Because people are naturally sons of Adam, even if we support good ideals for a period of time, Eventually, sin will seep in and it will break down that utopian society. But Christ's coming, the new heavens and the new earth is exciting because we will be in God's intimate presence and because the lack of, of the lack of evil and the impossibility of it ever intruding ever again. So we get this utopian society, but we get it without the possibility of ever anything evil coming in ever again. Speaking of the New Jerusalem, this this perfect place, Revelation 21-27 says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. John MacArthur on on verse 22 of the same chapter says, going to heaven will be entering the limitless presence of the Lord. We get a a small foretaste, this side of of heaven. But going to heaven will be entering the limitless presence of the Lord. Not that it's a true metaphor, but we might say we get uh, 1% of what it is to to know the Lord in his intimate presence, this side of heaven. Well, what, if what John MacArthur is saying is true, and I, I think he's on to, onto something on this one, we get not just 100% when we're in heaven, but, but even beyond that, the, the limitless presence of the Lord with no possibility of evil ever coming in ever again. So when I asked you the question before, is this something that you expectantly wait for? Is this something which you you seek out, which you spend time meditating upon? When we consider what it is that we could be meditating upon, it's something which is really exciting, which ought to be fairly easy to think about. And so uh, may we put ourselves to that end. And last verse, and I've only got a, a few things to say on it in verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This glorious age of intimacy with our God is ours through the merits of Jesus who redeemed us from sin. We as God's people are to be uh, therefore zealous for good works. We are to be those who are, are keen in every second of every hour of every day to be doing good works so that the The gospel of god might be adorned well so that we would get a foretaste of what it is to be in the limitless presence of god and so that we might meditate upon this uh, again day by day hour by hour to conclude much of the chapter really is summarized in verses seven five and ten and yes i realize i said those out of order but to put them together in a sentence Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works so that the word of God may not be reviled and that we may, and that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. Paul lays this out for the, the family, the teaching elder, the employee or the bond servant, the Christian. And there is beauty that exists if we take heed of that message and put it into place. Christians are to strive yeah, to put it very basically, uh, Christians are to strive for excellence to the glory of God. Second point, the grace of God has appeared. With what we've just said, having been said, when was the last time you contemplated the wonder of a wretched sinner like you, having been saved by our merciful God? When I say like you, like me also, don't think that I'm uh, classing myself higher. As we pray for the salvation of others, we can reflect on God's grace shown to us, who, were it not for his grace, would be in the same position as those whom we are praying for. And the last point, our blessed hope is the appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Contemplate that blessed reality. Let it enthrall and motivate you in your Christian walk. It ought to be something which is easy to consider, but uh, I would say that it's difficult because of the the enemy and the ways of the world which so often distract from contemplating such a a blessed reality. Strive towards Christ's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. And lastly, as as a a one-liner, Jesus has won, is winning, and currently rules and reigns on his sovereign throne. Despite all of the difficulty around us, this is nonetheless the reality we find ourselves in. And so as you contemplate this, this blessed hope, this, this grace of God which has appeared and has done things for our sin so that we can be forgiven, uh, we know that that same Lord rules and reigns on His throne and we look forward to His coming. Let's pray. Lord, what a a wonderful passage of Scripture, both in terms of its practical application for every day and, Lord, in terms of how it puts us in a state of awe of you, of who you are, of your coming. And I pray that as Paul bids Titus, that we would be those who do consider often the grace of God shown to us and Lord that we would consider you and your eternal kingdom and what an amazing thing it will be to exist in that place. We thank you, Lord, that you save and we thank you, Lord, that you hold those whom you save. You do not let them go. So Lord, may we have a surety in our salvation and yet may we always be those who strive to be zealous for good works that your gospel, that you may be adorned and given high repute as you ought to be. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.